Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening. You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 21. I'm your host, Otis Jiry. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing four stories for you about fearsome figures, ominous obsessions, perilous plans, and oceanside oddities. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program. If you'd like to show your support, and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail, so lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale of terror this evening comes to us courtesy of an author who goes by the moniker Random Ruru. In it, we travel to the Scottish Highlands and find out that they've got more going for them than the scenery, and it just might be watching you. Without further ado, I present to you in the Mist Scotland is one of those places that seems to never really be simple, or summed up neatly into a couple of words. Sure, you can try. The tourists certainly do. Tartan, booze, and heavy accents. But I've lived here all my life, never worn a tartan nor drunk. In reality, it's like most places in the world are nowadays, a strange mix of tradition and striving to be ahead in the modern world. But one thing that truly seems to persist with the country is fear. 
the fear of the countryside, the hills and the cliffs, the strong currents of the sea, the knowledge that the world out there is a dangerous place. Fear followed us into the towns as well, one of the simplest forms of merely being stabbed by one of the notorious gangs on the East Coast. But after my experiences growing up, I would say the fear of the countryside persists the most. That old world full of magic and ghouls so easy to laugh about when sitting at home. But out there on the moors, it's the type of place where you can really start to believe those old stories. I grew up in the countryside, in one of those tucked-away houses in the highlands, which, in order to get to, one needed to take the most underused roads possible before turning down a practically hidden track, winding deeper into the unkempt forests. In a lot of ways, it was a pretty darn good place to grow up in, there was little traffic, so my parents had little worry over the usual city problems. Plenty of room to keep animals of all sorts in a vast playground stretching out for miles. There were a few downsides, of course. A long journey to school and back each day. Even longer once I moved up to secondary. Pretty crap internet connection once we finally got it and a temperamental source of electricity. We were good at playing board games during power cuts. But one thing that I loved about our house was its location, near the base of a steep hill. My parents were enthusiastic hill walkers, and although when I was little I'd complained about being dragged along, I soon caught the bug for it. All we had to do for a great walk was take the pathway from the back of our house heading uphill and just follow it along. Soon enough, the trees would clear, and you'd be left with a pretty fantastic view of the landscape. It was also the type of hill, close to several others on one side, the types that all appear to melt into each other and loom dauntingly, bordering the view from a car window on the long stretch of road heading toward Inverness. And boy, if you love walking... You'd adore these hills. Of course, my parents were always cautious when I was little. It was definitely the type of place you wouldn't want a small child wandering about by themselves. But once I got older, I was allowed to go out by myself, promising to stick to the designated path and not go too far. Kids never really do listen to their parents, do they? Of course, as I grew even older... My parents became much more lax about the rules and trusted that I was able to look after myself fairly well on my own, and generally I had good experiences up the hillside. I found what I can only describe as the glory of walking, the feeling of being completely isolated, and at one with nature, the vastness of everything, the knowledge that the path I was walking had been one that many people and many generations ago had taken. But I suppose this story is about the bad experiences I had up there. As beautiful as the landscape was, there's another thing about Scotland. The weather is as unpredictable as our own tempers. There was once, when I was about nine years old, I'd grown bored of watching television and decided to head out on a walk, taking one of our three dogs along with me, Penny, a border collie, and wandered up along the hillside. I was heading down this pile of rocks, which I'd nicknamed Stonehenge, but was in reality, yeah, most likely an old cairn that had been knocked over and its stones haphazardly scattered. It was a bit off the beaten path, but not too far away from the safety zone. I enjoyed going up there to play about it being a Neanderthal or tomb opener. The details I can't remember. But what I do remember is how I was so caught up in my imaginings and play that I didn't realize the weather had taken a turn for the worst, and that a thin veil of mist had set in that was growing steadily thicker thicker, 
I noticed this, and even though I started to feel unsure, I could still see the pathway, so shrugged and carried on playing. The next thing I knew, there was a loud bark from Penny, who I turned to face, to see what she had gotten worked up about. But as I turned, I saw her speeding towards me, her teeth bared. When a dog comes running toward you as though it's about to attack, it's a pretty frightening thing, especially when you're so young. I was frozen still, trying to figure out where I should run, when Penny had already jumped on top of me, toppling me over, and I fell in the gap between two of the largest stones. Thankfully, I didn't crack my head open on a rock, but the tumble was still scary enough, and I merely curled up, whimpering, convinced that my dog had turned against me and would tear me to shreds. She hovered above me, her teeth inches from my neck, but instead of reaching down, she continued to snarl at something that wasn't me. She barked, and I felt her weight lift from me as she moved off me, furious at something I couldn't see between my fingers. I stayed very still for I don't know how long, but it felt like an eternity. Finally, she stopped appearing as though she was about to attack and retreated back to me, tentatively licking my face. I gathered as much bravery as I could muster and got up on my knees before she nudged me away from where she'd taken a stance. I stood up and moved towards the path, and Penny stayed close at my side, still not at ease. She relaxed a little when we met the trodden path, but as I stumbled back toward the home, quickly my legs still brushed against her side as I took each step. I had a bit of explaining to do to my parents when I came in, but they were used to me getting a bit dirtied up and scratched when I played in the forest. I mentioned how defensive Penny had gotten, but we all ended up brushing it off, thinking it had maybe been a stray sheep that she'd been growling at. The second experience I had was a fair few years later when I was 15 years old. It was an age in which I'd probably spent the least amount of time outside on walks as I'd gotten caught up in the world of the Internet and was able to communicate with my friends relatively cheaply at home, something which I was greatly excited by. That Saturday, the Internet had failed and I'd got increasingly angry, taking my frustration out by yelling at my parents about how horrific it was to live so isolated and, in typical teenage manner, stormed out of the house. Knowing that they'd likely uh, be following me on the road towards civilization, I headed in the opposite direction and took myself up the hillside. Slowly, my frustration diminished as I worked out my anger through my physical exercise and I found myself almost smiling as I looked out at the view I had not seen in some months, having forgotten how glorious walking was. Instead of going back home in a much more reasonable mood, I decided to enjoy the countryside that afternoon and started wandering about the hillside. By that age, I knew the whole area better than most people know their hometown and could have figured my way back home in the middle of the night I hiked up to the summit of one hill before dipping down and up again to the next summit. As I looked out, I could see that the weather was taking a turn for the worst again and headed back home. As I wandered back, a strange combination of mist and cloud started unfurling itself, obscuring the summit from my view and wafting down the hillside in waves. It was just about then I started feeling odd. There was a strange sensation, a tingle down my spine, if you'll pardon the cliché, and my steps, although usually strong and steady, felt unsure. I stumbled down the hill as fast as I could before glancing at the landscape around me that was now partially obscured. It was then that I had the single most terrifying experience of my life. As silly and typical as it sounds... I felt doubt, doubt over where I was. I had a vague idea, but was doubting whether I really was where I thought I was. As I've said before, I knew that hillside so well 
that to have a moment where I felt unsure was completely alien. I then panicked. Blind panic is one of those things that you feel ashamed of or don't really understand as a watcher, but it was what I experienced up there. Everything became so silent, and all I could hear was the beating of my heart. My breaths grew ragged and shallow, uneven, inhaling too little, exhaling too much. My childhood world was gone, and I was in a place that I didn't know and would never get out of. It's a fairly common occurrence for people to get lost in the highlands. People wander out into the hills, get hurt, and can't get help. People get lost among the heather and fall in a peat bog, unable to get out. It's a sad truth, but you get used to it. We get a lot of tourists in our area, and they often do go missing. The number of cups of tea we've served to rescue teams is innumerable, and it's sad that we appear to have grown an exterior skin, being a bit insensitive and feeling more that the tourists were a bit dim for getting lost up there and not sticking to the paths. In that moment, though, I genuinely believed that I wasn't going to get home. I broke down and ran. It didn't really matter that the tears were obscuring my vision or that the misty clouds had grown thicker than ever or that I had no idea where I was running. I just ran as damn well hard as I could. I wasn't going to be someone who would curl up into a little ball and freeze to death. And for some reason, I just hoped as long as I ran downhill for long enough, I'd reach some form of civilization again. But that depended entirely on which hill I was on. I stumbled along down, trying hard not to fall, although I'm sure I twisted my ankle by plowing through the uneven terrain until finally I fell down. I screamed, a true, completely uncontrollable scream, as I fell to the ground hard. I banged my face on something hard and cried out in agony. I felt my face and cringed to find a warm, sticky substance on it. I wiped it away as best as I could and squinted hard to see what I'd fallen on. I was almost crying with joy when I realized that I must have tripped over one of the rogue rocks of Stonehenge. It was a relief to know that I was at a well-visited landmark of mine and had the instructions of how to get home from here carved into my mind. Although it's a bit pathetic to admit this, I crawled to the path and cried with relief when I reached it. I continued crawling for a good part of the way, just too scared to get up and see the world closed off around me, with the mist pressing in from all sides. I eventually managed to stand up again once I reached the muddier part of the forest. My parents were worried sick when I got back in, and quickly drove me to the hospital. My wounds weren't too bad, but I'd lost a lot of blood, as the cut was to my head, so I got it stitched up. I shakily managed to tell my parents that I'd just panicked, ended up running and tripped. It could easily be chalked up to nerves, or the fact I hadn't been walking up there for a few months. But I felt in my heart that it was something deeper than that. There had been an instinctive part of me that felt wrong, and though I wouldn't dare to admit it to anyone, I hadn't been alone on the hill. It hadn't just been bad weather. It had been the strange sort of mist that had either fogged my brain or had been trying to draw me into it. After that incident, I wouldn't go walking up the hill by myself and always made sure I at least brought a dog along. I was simply too shaken up, but it didn't completely deter me from enjoying the splendors of the hills. The final time I went walking in the hills was about a year after the last incident, and I was 16. I was starting to feel a lot better about what had happened and began to rationalize it in my head. One of my closer friends had come over for a weekend, and we had spent the first night staying up late, stuffing our faces and munching away on whatever food we could find in the cupboard. 
The next day, though, our entertainment was wearing thin, and we decided to get out and about a bit. Unfortunately, having woken up late, we'd missed a ride into the closest village with my mum, and instead of taking a trek down to the bus stop, we decided just to do a walk nearby and set off up the hill. We laughed and jested, and I showed him my friend, Leslie, uh, the place where I'd cracked my head open, as well as the cairn on the top of the hill. We spent a good couple of hours simply wandering slowly around the hillsides. And again, we lost track of time a bit, and was starting to look a bit dim, so we started, well, started to head back home. A mist had settled in, and the whole place felt as if it had, when I was fifteen, a bit disoriented. However, I took deep breaths, controlled my emotions, and continued on in a calm manner. After a while, Leslie started to worry a bit out loud. Are you sure we're heading in the right direction? Yes, I replied confidently, trying to keep my voice assured. There was a pause as we walked in silence for five minutes. How come it's taking so long? Leslie moaned. Are you sure you know where we are? I nodded. How can you even tell in this? My friend gestured around at the white landscape. I didn't really know how to answer that. I was just using my gut instinct. I could have pointed out a couple of rock shapes that we'd passed that I knew well, but I doubt it would have seemed very convincing. Leslie knew that I'd gotten lost here once, and evidently that was casting doubt on the accuracy of my judgment. I looked around and realized for the first time how blindingly white it all seemed. It was then that I saw something else in the mist. Glancing back at Leslie, I saw that my companion had seen the figure too. It was hard to properly see, but it definitely looked like someone else had gotten caught in the ridiculous weather as well. Some poor bugger was stumbling around looking lost. I sighed and was about to say I was going to go fetch them and take them back with us when Leslie spoke first. Look, why don't we go ask them for directions? I choked back a laugh. <laughs> Somehow I don't think they're going to be the best help. It's probably some tourist. She looked at me incredulously. What are you talking about? They look a damn lot more sure themselves than we do. I glanced back at the figure, which appeared to have fallen down, confused. Look, come on, before he goes. Leslie started off toward the figure. No! Grabbed her arm. What? I spoke in an urgent whisper. The thing over there, it's standing up. Leslie looked at it before turning back and rolling her eyes. Yes. I looked over. The figure was almost definitely on the ground, fumbling around. We should go. Now. What? Shh. I lowered my voice. Now step back slowly. Oh, for Christ's sake. Look, I'll just be a minute to go ask the guy if we're headed in the right direction, Okay. I shook my head, but she pried her arm from my grasp and made a face at me and wandered off towards the figure. I watched her go as she and the figure faded slowly from my view. I waited for ten minutes, then went home. When I got home, I told my parents that Leslie and I had gotten separated, and a search team was called. I wasn't entirely sure whether I should mention the figure we'd seen, hard to make out by both of us, but what such differing behaviors. But I told the police when they came to interview me. I doubt they took me seriously, what with the fact I'd had bad experiences before and probably concluded that I'd had a hallucination of some sort. After all, a lot of people go up, not everyone comes down. It's a sad, unfortunate truth. But now, looking back... Not so sure it's as simple as that. Of course, accidents happen, but I can't help but remember those three incidents. The same prickling of hairs against my shirt. The same feeling of the mist pressing in around me. The same nagging that something wasn't quite right. <laughs>
You see, the figure was two things at once. From my perspective, I saw a lost tourist, some poor bugger that had strayed from the path and not gotten back before getting completely disoriented. Leslie claimed to have seen someone who was sure of themselves, someone to ask for help. We both saw something that we were attracted to approach. I didn't. Leslie did. They never found Leslie. After that day, I never went walking there again. Now I've moved away, and in my final year at university in Aberdeen, glad to have moved on with my life. There have been times I've been out with mates to the pub and come across a group of tourists just heading north. They often ask a few of us about the Highlands and for any stories. Sometimes they even ask directly about mythical creatures, such as the Loch Ness Monster or about the Fae, and I tell them my story. Normally they'll nod and listen politely enough, while my friends jeer away at me for trying to wind up the tourists or being a bit soft in the head, believing in fairies and the like. But there are a few times, after I laugh off the teasing, that I catch someone's eye, whether they be someone I share a mutual friend with but don't know well, or a quiet drinker at the bar listening into our conversation, someone who themselves have lived outside the cities. And we share, just for a moment, an understanding. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed In the Mist by author Random Ruru, as performed by yours truly. Our second bit of frightening fiction tonight comes to us from author Tyler Ouellette and demonstrates the lengths some people will go to in order to get their OCD under control. Without further ado, I present to you, I Love Numbers. I love numbers. Even numbers, to be exact. I like that there are 48 stairs leading up to my cell. I like that I get precisely four hours of leisure time every day. No more, no less. I like that my wake-up time, my breakfast time my lunchtime, and my dinner time all happen on times ending in zero. I like that there are 80 cells in my block, 20 on each of the four floors. I like that my cell is on the fourth floor, six doors down. I don't like that there are 17 bars on my cell door. I don't like that my prisoner number is 15393, all odd numbers. My least favorite. I hate that I was only able to kill 19 people before I was caught. It began when I was a child. Six years, eight months, and 14 days old to be exact. At first, I started by counting the letters in my name, Oliver. Eventually, my desire for even numbers forced me to move on to anything and everything around me. My family began calling my routine my counts. My counts 
would happen all throughout the day. As soon as I woke up at 6.44 a.m., I would count 20 teeth, 20 teeth, 20 teeth, 20 teeth, the same as the day before. After counting my action figures, 12, 12, 12, 12, I would shower. Showering was one of my favorite parts of the day because I could control the numbers. Every shower was set to the tenth notch, the perfect temperature, and lasted exactly 600 seconds, ten minutes. These numbers are my favorite because they're even numbers, but also because they end in zero. At 7.14, I would walk down the 14 stairs in our house, counting each one along the way. I'd eat my cereal, meticulously counting the number of seconds each spoonful took to chew. Before getting on the bus at 7.39, I would count our fridge magnets. Seven, 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 seven. This is where my family first started noticing my counts. At first, they thought it was just a normal quirk little kids have when they learn something new. Soon enough, though, my counts became worse. My first-grade teacher, Miss Sullivan, would tell my parents that I wasn't as developed as the other kids. She noticed that I would take longer than the other students on every assignment. At first, my parents didn't understand why. They thought I was doing great based on my counts at home. They began asking me questions, usually nine questions every night. I hated their questions. I hated that they didn't ask one more or one less to be even, but I always answered. Through hearing my responses, they began to realize that my counts weren't just my young brain trying to understand numbers. I would tell them about how, when I was at school, I couldn't focus on my work because there were too many things to count. The number of books on the shelf, the number of markers and colored pencils, and crayons strewn across the craft table, the number of branches on the tree right outside the classroom window. One of my favorite counts was when I would count the kids in the classroom. Sixteen, 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 an even number. When someone was absent, though, it would throw off the entire day. I had an even more difficult time trying to get my work done. All I could focus on was the feeling that something was unbalanced in the room. Eventually, my parents took me to the doctor. While I was waiting in the examination room, I counted the jars on the desk. Three, 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 three. The lights in the room. Six, 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 six and anything else in the room that my eyes fell upon. After waiting eight minutes and fifty-four seconds, my doctor, Dr. Stephanie, finally arrived. She started asking me questions that made me uncomfortable, but I knew my parents wanted me to answer, so I did. Oliver, she started to question me, what's on your mind right now? The pen's in your pocket. Three. I don't like three. I responded. And why don't you like the number three? It's an odd. I like evens. They're the good numbers. That's great. I like the evens better, too. So, when you're counting, you must always count an even number of times, then. Looking back on this conversation, it seems like Dr. Stephanie was just appeasing me since I was only six years, ten months, and twenty-two days old. Always four times. Sometimes, more times, if I need to. Your parents tell me that you aren't paying attention to your work at school. Is this because you're too busy counting? Yeah. There's lots to count in Miss Sullivan's room. I never feel like I'm done counting yet. I could see why that would be hard to focus. Hopefully, we can do something to help improve your work, okay? I just need to speak to your parents out in the hall for a minute, and we'll be right back in. Don't move a muscle. 
Dr. Stephanie left me in the room alone while she talked to my parents in the hall, forgetting to close the door as they left. I looked down at the floor and started counting the towels for the sixth time since I entered the office. As I was counting, 21, 22, 23, I heard Dr. Stephanie quietly mention something about medication. I didn't know what this meant at the time, but obviously my parents did, and they did not like it. They started yelling, Our son does not need medication, and we will not be coming back to this office. My mother grabbed my arm and took me out to the car before I was able to finish counting the tiles. I never asked what was wrong. I was too busy counting all the street signs on the way home. They never took me to another doctor again. Nothing changed after the meeting with Dr. Stephanie. I continued to do my counts every day, and I still struggled in school because I just couldn't focus. Two months and three days after the doctor's appointment, a new student, Parker, joined our class. Seventeen, 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 seventeen students in the class. The classroom had become permanently unbalanced because of Parker. I hated him. My ability to focus on my work dropped even lower. The counts got even worse since I was constantly craving even numbers. One day, after school, my desire got too strong. I remembered Parker was on my bus and lived on my street. The bus stopped at its fourth stop, our stop, and we both got off. Instead of going to my house, I decided to follow Parker to see where he lived. I counted the steps as I lurked behind him out of his line of sight. We got to his house after 474 steps. I watched from a distance as he walked in through the front door, unsure of my next move. After 12 minutes and 19 seconds, he came back outside to play basketball in his driveway. At the time, my childish mind thought the perfect way was to get back at him by pushing him and yelling at him. I approached him in his driveway and said, Parker, you're a big minion. I don't want you in my class. He messed up my counts. He turned around and looked at me with a confused look. Obviously, he had no idea what my counts were, but it felt invigorating to finally yell at him. He started to talk, but wasn't able to get the words out before I pushed him to the ground. I'll never forget the sound of my first kill. It was a hollow noise, but with an alarming crack, like a wooden baseball bat shattering. His head just happened to land on the only rock in his entire driveway. A puddle of red began to soak the pavement around his head. He wasn't moving. Even though I was only six at the time, I knew I had done something very wrong. I really didn't mean to hurt him. I just wanted to push him down to scare him. I turned around and ran home after only waiting for four seconds. While I was running, all I could think of was, what if I hurt him? And I didn't mean to. When I arrived home, I was glad to see my parents weren't back from work yet. This gave me some time to pull myself together. They came home at 5.27, and I stayed quiet for the rest of the night. The next day in class, I was doing my counts, and I only counted 16, 16, 16. Sixteen students. Parker wasn't here. Miss Sullivan gathered us all in a circle and started speaking to us in a somber voice. Okay, everyone. You may have noticed that Parker isn't here today. She started. We all nodded. Well, Parker had an accident yesterday while he was playing outside. He hit his head very hard and won't be able to come to class anymore. This is very sad for me, and it's okay for all you to be sad, too. If anyone needs anything today, come talk to me, okay? Okay, we all say in unison. Great. Now, let's all go back to our desks so we can begin class. 
As we all got up and started heading back to our desks, I began thinking of Parker. At the time, I knew very little about death, but I knew it was permanent. I knew what I had done to Parker was permanent. Initially, this scared me. I was worried someone would find out that I was the one that pushed him, that it was my fault he wasn't going to be coming to class anymore. The more I thought about this, I realized the class would always be even now. Sixteen, 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 sixteen. My counts wouldn't be messed up anymore. I was responsible for controlling the numbers. Usually, when I controlled the numbers, it was for little things like the number of bites of food I took or how many times I counted something. This time, I controlled the entire classroom. I made the whole thing feel balanced again. I could use this ability for the rest of my life, and that's exactly what I did. The next five years and six months were rather uneventful. No one ever found out that I was the one who killed Parker. The cops deemed it an accident, saying that he tripped while he was out playing by himself. I had just started sixth grade, which meant going to a new school and discovering all new things to count. I had six classes, five of which had an even number of students. The only one that didn't was my science class. Every day I would go to the class and feel unbalanced. My counts were messed up, and my ability to work had taken a hit again. I decided I needed to control the numbers. I knew that this girl in my class, Paige, had a crush on me. She'd follow me around and always interrupt my counts. I was so irritated by her. She would be my next target. This time, I didn't want it to be an accident. I wanted to feel authority of controlling the numbers. For three weeks and three days, I plotted the perfect plan. First, I would ask Paige to the school dance that was only two weeks and six days away. While we were at the dance, I would tell her that I wanted to kiss her. Finally, we would sneak off to the bathroom, where I would kill her and make the numbers even again. Paige obviously said yes when I asked her to the dance. The next two weeks and five days went by painfully slow, as all I could think about was controlling the numbers. Finally, though, the day of the dance arrived. My parents dropped me off at the school, and I waited outside for seven minutes and 43 seconds. She couldn't even wait a little bit longer to make an even amount of time. She really was the worst. I thought to myself as we walked inside. She was ecstatic that I finally acknowledged her and actually asked her to the dance. We reached the cafeteria where the dance was being held and saw a dark room with loud music and sixth graders running around like animals. I always hated school dances because there was just too many things to count. The number of kids, the number of songs they played, how long each song was, the number of different foods they were serving, and so much more. I knew, however that coming to this dance would be worth it. Would you mind if we danced over there? I asked, pointing to the corner of the room, closest to the bathroom. Of course not, she said, slightly confused, but still happy that I had asked to dance with her. Neither of us knew how to dance, so we awkwardly just shuffled around for ten minutes and fifty-four seconds until finally I said, Hey, Paige... Would you maybe um, want to kiss me? We could go into the bathroom so it's not so dark. I was incredibly nervous. Not because I didn't want to kiss her, but because I was finally going to be able to control the numbers. Oh, oh, okay, she responded, flustered. I grabbed her arm and rushed her off to the girl's bathroom. As soon as we got there, I made sure no one else was hiding in the stalls. We were alone. She had a huge smile on her face, and I faked a smile for her, too. As we were both leaning in for the kiss, 
I felt around for the corner of the sink. I placed my hand on the right side of her head. Instead of guiding her face to mine, I slammed her head into the corner of the sink, leaving a red smudge. She immediately collapsed to the ground. I put my ear to her nose and counted ten seconds. She wasn't breathing. I had finally done it. I controlled the numbers. The high I felt from making the numbers even was like nothing I'd ever experienced. My brain was overwhelmed by even numbers. I was in control of all the numbers again, and this time I was wholly responsible. However, I wasn't done yet. I needed to make this look like an accident. I grabbed a wet floor sign out of the nearest janitor's closet and rushed back to the bathroom. Thankfully, no one had found Paige yet. I splashed some water on the ground and on the bottom of Paige's shoes. Next, I just placed the wet floor sign right at her feet and ran back out to the dance. No one ever found out I was the one who killed her. As I grew older, I never outgrew my counts or my overwhelming desire for even numbers. I continued to kill the people who messed up my counts. Natalie, when I was 14 for being the seventh member in my English group. Caleb, when I was 19 for being my third roommate. Marcus, when I was 22 for always leaving out TV volumes on an odd number. Cheryl, when I was 24 for sending out 17 or 13 or 15 emails every day and 12 other people who irritated me. I learned to get creative with my kills since I needed to make them look like accidents or make sure the bodies would never be found. Sometimes I would hit people in the head hard enough to kill them and plant props to give the appearance that they slipped and hit their head. Other times I would slip poison into people's foods which would cause their organs to shut down and not cause any suspicion on an autopsy. One time, I hung a person while they were still alive to make it look like a suicide. I never left any evidence until my 19th and final kill. My 19th kill was a man named Ellis that I worked with. Ellis wasn't the odd number in a group, and he didn't do anything noticeable in odd amounts but he would always interrupt my counts. When I was at my desk, I would count my picture frames. Four, 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 four. And he would interrupt me multiple times a day. I was so irritated by him. I knew I had to kill him. Since we worked together, it was easy to figure out where I would kill him. By his car after work. I kept a wooden bat in my car that I often used on many of my victims. The end of the day came, and I saw Ellis getting ready to leave, so I quietly gathered all my belongings, put on my coat, and slipped out before he could. I rushed down to my car, grabbed my bat, and hid in the bushes near his car. After waiting three minutes and sixteen seconds, I heard the click of his car unlocking. Now was my chance. Without saying a word, I darted out from the snowy bushes right in front of him and brought my bat down on his skull. The impact made a loud, hollow cracking noise and shattered my bat. I immediately knew something wasn't right. Ellis fell to the ground, the front of his head slightly indented. He was still breathing. Before I could react, he stumbled onto his feet and slugged me right across the face. I remember feeling my nose bleeding, but I wasn't paying attention to it. Instead, I was focused on finishing what I started. I raised the splintered end of the bat that I still had in my hand and brought it down onto his skull. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times before he finally stopped breathing. Before I left, I had to make it look like he slept on ice, since it was winter at the time. I poured water right at Ellis's feet, knowing it would freeze within minutes. Next, I took what was left of my bat and hit the side mirror four times to make it look like Ellis hit his head on it after he slipped. Finally, I gathered all 19 splinters of my bat and went home.
I was thrilled to no longer have to worry about Ellis interrupting my counts. My excitement, however, didn't last very long. The next few days went on as normal, as they possibly could be. I did all my counts without any interruptions, which was a wonderful and new feeling. The people in the office mourned over Ellis, but I didn't care. He was just one less person I had to worry about counting. Everything was going great until five days after the murder. On that day, I heard a knock on my door while getting ready for work. I rushed downstairs, counting them as I went, and opened the door. Three cops greeted me with a pair of handcuffs. Oliver Miller, you're under their arrest for the murder of Ellis Langdon. After 19 kills, I'd finally been caught. I felt incomplete, like a huge part of me had just been taken away. Obviously, I knew I was going to jail for what I had done, which meant I would never get my 20th kill. I would be incomplete for the rest of my life. Apparently, what had happened was, when Ellis punched me in the face, he got some of my blood on his knuckles. It was tested and traced back to me. They searched my car while I was at work one day and found the remains of the bat, which had his DNA all over it. After I was arrested for Ellis's murder, the cops launched a full investigation on me. They connected 17 out of the 18 other murders I had committed to me. The only one they couldn't prove I did was Parker. But at that point, it didn't matter. I'd killed more people in 38 years than three serial killers do in their whole lifetime combined. My court trial went as anyone would expect. I pled not guilty. There was way too much evidence against me. I was found guilty. The worst part was when the judge was reading the verdict. He granted me 19 life sentences, one for every person I'd killed. He knew it would be another odd number that would nag me for the rest of my life. I've been in prison for six years, nine months, and 14 days. Every single day has been hell. I constantly am craving more even numbers. But I know if I kill someone in here... I get thrown in solitary for seven days. My whole life feels unbalanced. My counts haven't felt right ever since I got in here. The only thought that has ever run through my head for the past six years is 19, 19, 19, 19. I can't handle the incomplete feeling anymore. Tonight, I'll get my 20th kill. Myself. I hope you enjoyed I Love Numbers by author Tyler Willett, as performed by yours truly. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring Twice the Terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube. You can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, where you'll get all of our latest episodes and updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. 
You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Gyre channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Gyre. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs>
Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.